are listening to Gleanings, the monthly newsletter from Strategies at Work, podcast edition, May 1st, 2019. Upcoming events. The Strategic Life Alignment Seminar. Struggling to find meaning, purpose, and satisfaction in life? The Strategic Life Alignment Seminar will equip you with tools for discerning your divinely ordained life purpose. For more information or to purchase a recording of this training, please visit strategieswork.com. The Strategic Life Alignment Alumni Event. The 2019 Alumni Event will be held in the summer of 2019. The topic will be Blocks to Running Your Race. Recordings of all seven alumni events are available in the Strategies at Work store at strategieswork.com. The Seminar Executional Excellence. This training was held last month. Recordings are available on the website. These are challenging economic times. There is much fear in the world. Now more than ever, people need to understand the power of building their lives on Christ. Only faith in Christ can provide sustained victory over fear. If you need help learning how to walk with Christ, Strategies at Work has consultants in various parts of the world. Please see the website, strategieswork.com, for contact information. And now, Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, How Nominalism Changed the World. Well, this morning I want to talk a little bit about the historical context in which we find ourselves because every generation lives in a historical context. And history is simply a confluence of philosophy and events that form a worldview that defines societal norms. In other words, society generally has a worldview, a, a way of seeing reality and defining what is right and wrong and defining basically the institutions that we value. It gives a, a value system, it gives us what we call virtues, and things that we don't consider to be values or virtues. Several hundred years ago, societal norms were largely defined by a Christian worldview. In fact, prior to the, about the 16th century AD, which, which, uh, which has been a large part of history, roughly 5,000 years of human history, uh, approaching 6,000 years, if you believe in a new earth, uh, most of that time, there was no such thing as an atheist. It was all basically theistic. Now, I know scripture does talk about atheists, but it talks about them being fools. And largely, atheism had been regarded as foolishness prior to about the 16th century AD. In fact, uh, Al Mohler says that there was no word in the English language for atheism until the 16th century AD, which that's a remarkable statement there. But for some reason or another, we now have this word atheism in our, in our language. Uh, in the Greek language, the uh, language of the, uh, the New Testament, the Hebrew language, um, the word, the atheism, is basically theism that's negated, which, uh, which means no God. Or, and it was generally translated as someone who was a fool. Uh, that way is ignorant person. So it's largely been associated with ignorance, but now atheism is not associated with ignorance. It's associated now with a worldview. So today the context is characterized not by Christianity, but by the rejection of Christianity. And by rejecting Christianity, you default to atheism as the basis for societal norms and the assertion of humanism as the defining worldview of our culture. 
Consequently, many historical norms today are considered good, and even though historically they've been considered evil. And so this reversion, this flipping of good and evil and societal norms is a product of history. So I want to consider some of the major events of why we are calling things that have historically been evil, we're calling them now, calling them good, and things that we have historically called good, we're now calling evil. So we want to look at the last particularly 500 years of history and see if we can understand more clearly why this has happened and how this has happened. And then I want to do an application. I want to apply this to, um, to some event, an event that's happening today to help us understand that event better. You know, to understand events well, you have to contextualize them in history and understand some of the backdrop of them. So that's what we'll attempt to do this morning. So let's go back to creation. We have God creating the universe. Those of us that believe that the Bible is God's revelation to us about himself and what his works, his, his greatest work from our perspective is going to be creation. He created a physical universe. Even though he is not a physical being, he's a spirit being, he created a physical universe and he created mankind to rule his physical universe. Then mankind rebelled. And when mankind rebelled, he fell. He fell from his position of innocence, his position of acceptance, his position of being you know, God's agent and became a fallen agent, a depraved agent. And much of the Old Testament is committed to helping us understand how deep we have fallen. Now, that's a hard one for us to guess because most of us think we're pretty good people. I know many of my Bible school students would readily tell you they've been pretty good people. Well, uh, that's not what scripture says. From God's perspective, and he's the standard, we are totally depraved, and that is totally incapable of doing enough to please God. We cannot do enough good works, good deeds. We cannot be righteous enough. No matter how good we may think we are, it will never be enough because God's standard of righteousness is called perfection. We see that in, in Galatians 3, among other places. James 2 also states that, that God expects perfect obedience, and we can never, never do it. Even when we're given a law, which the Israelites were given was a law, and all they had to do was perfectly obey the law, and they would have been perfectly acceptable with God. And, of course, the record of the Old Testament is they failed miserably. And so that's the picture. That's what we're faced with, a situation where we're totally fallen and incapable of helping ourselves. So basically, the first 3,500 years of human history, assuming a new earth, is trying to paint that picture for us. And then about 500 years before Christ came along, the Greeks rose up, the famous uh, trio. You have Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. These men largely began to formalize the fallenness of human, human beings based on their pagan understanding. They formalized humanism. Humanism actually began when Adam and Eve sinned. They were the first humanist and rebelled against God. But the formalization of humanism didn't happen until the Greeks. And when the Greeks formalized it, they were just really deep thinkers. That through common grace, they were able to really apply reason and come to some a number of conclusions that 
uh, had not really been thought through before, but now they were being thought through. The Greeks were largely polytheists. They were not atheists. Now, there were some that might claim to have been atheists, but mostly were polytheists because atheism really has, was not, really not intellectually acceptable until about the 19th century. So you're talking about uh, um, 6,000 years of history, almost 6,000 years of history before atheism gains any kind of real intellectual credibility. Up to then, it was largely discounted. Almost everyone was a theist. The question was, who was God? To the Greeks, they were polytheists, and their gods were really more, more like superhumans. They weren't really the gods that we would consider based on the God of the Bible. So the Greeks developed their brand of, um, of humanism built on homo mensura, which is man the measure. Man became the measuring stick. And the way that happened was that Aristotle, who was the, the youngest of the three, was the one that probably had the most influence in the end. He's the one that really promoted the idea that we need to focus on the physical realm to define all of reality. That is a very important point because that's what humanism basically does. It focuses on the physical realm to define reality. And if you're informed about science, you know immediately that is how a scientist thinks. A scientist thinks today that the physical explains everything. Well, that came ultimately from Aristotle. About 400 years or so after Aristotle passed, Christ comes, and of course, Christ is the ultimate solution to the problem of total depravity. Christ comes with divine power to deal with sin and death, and he alone provides the basis for salvation through his death. His substitutionary vicarious atonement laid the foundation for the final solution to a fallen mankind's condition. So that was the, that's the Christian answer to reality, but it's fundamentally a spiritual answer that has physical manifestations. It's different from how Aristotle thought. So what happened then next, the church began to go through an age of being formed. As it was being formed, um, you know, it went through a lot of ebbs and flows. It had a period of persecution. Then it had a period where it was accepted. And then the Roman Catholic Church began to be uh, established. And there, there ultimately was a church split between Eastern and Western churches in the 10th century. And then in the 14th century, we have a man coming along named William of Ockham, who is part of the, the rise of the universities. The universities emerged out of the monasteries, out of the desire to preserve scripture and to understand scripture. And also they were challenged because they began to look at the writings of Plato and Aristotle. Socrates never wrote anything, so we have nothing from him except what Plato said about him but Plato and Aristotle were prolific writers. However, they wrote at a time when it was difficult to preserve writings. So for a long period of time, Plato's writings and Aristotle's writings were not readily accessible. But in, in about, the, uh, about the 14th century, these writings became much more accessible. About this same time, the printing press is coming on the scene. And so now we have a way to capture these writings and reproduce them easily and distribute them. So scholasticism, as it was called, which is the early university systems began to emerge. The early universities were rooted in theology. 
the starting point for all knowledge was theology. There were no atheists. They were all theists and largely Christian theists who were trying to understand scripture and they were trying to bring in the Greek training on reason and rationalism, bring that and integrate that into scripture. Now, initially, the way they integrated it is they were filtering out that which didn't align with scripture of the Greek writings. In other words, they viewed scripture as authoritative and they would find value in the Greeks that uh, in whatever way they agreed with scripture. So that's what William of Ockham had done that. And actually, Augustine in the fourth and fifth century had done the same thing with Plato's writings. Plato actually had more revelation that was closer to scripture than Aristotle did. Aristotle, Aristotle promoted humanism much more profoundly than Plato did. Plato promoted a transcendent reality as the starting point, as the definer for all of reality. And so he was much closer to a biblical view, even though it wasn't very biblical, he was closer to it. And Augustine find value in Plato and he read through Plato and he would filter out what Plato, where Plato didn't line up with scripture and whatever he did, he would retain. Aristotle, his writings were recovered in about the 13th century, the 14th century. And now people like Aquinas begin to filter Aristotle's writings through scripture and then William of Ockham came along a little bit after Aquinas, and he begins, as one of the early university uh, scholastics, begin to ask some questions about, do we understand God profoundly? And perhaps our understanding of God is too limiting. And so he began to pose the idea that maybe God didn't actually create things literally. Maybe there wasn't a real creation. Maybe it was just a thought in the mind of God. And maybe there wasn't a real Adam. Maybe that was just a thought in the mind of God. Maybe there wasn't really a, a Jewish nation. That was just a thought. Maybe there wasn't a real Christ. That was just a thought. Maybe there was not really a, a cross and a resurrection. Maybe there was just thoughts in the minds of God. Maybe there really isn't a real salvation. You can see how if you are reducing what's been taught in scripture to a just thoughts in the minds of God, and it's not real, then you, you've, lost, you've lost track of reality. Because in the beginning, God created a real universe. And we have a real fall. We have a real Adam. We have a real Israelite nation. We have Christ who really came, and he's a virgin of a virgin birth, and he really died on the cross for our sins, and he was really resurrected to validate the fact that God accepted his sacrifice for the sins of men. So this is where the split began to happen. There was a lot of debate about nominalism for a long time and most of the theologians rejected it but slowly nominalism began to catch on and what nominalism did is it exalted man and denigrated god nominalism raised and elevated human reasoning and basically cast doubt or skepticism on the reality of revelation and this is important the first skeptics were Adam and Eve. The first humanists were Adam and Eve. And skepticism is about doubting God. When Adam and Eve sinned, they expressed their doubt about God. So William of Ockham just is just building on the skepticism that came in at the fall and taking it to a new level and basically giving humanism now a new basis for thinking that mankind was bigger and more important 
and more supreme than had ever been considered in human history. Unwittingly, Martin Luther came along and he is fighting with the Roman Catholic Church in the Reformation. And what he's after is a more pure understanding of the gospel, which was a good thing. But he was in a culture which was very, very submitted to church authority. And so what he found when he looked at the writings of William of Ockham was something that he really liked. That is more emphasis on human autonomy. And so he find, found value in that. He grabbed a hold of that without understanding. I, thought, I don't think he understood the implications of what he was thinking about. Then shortly after him, about 100 years after um, Martin Luther, we have Francis Bacon coming along. And Francis Bacon came along and introduced a, a new way of, of thinking, of empiricism, developing knowledge. He introduced the idea of inductive reasoning. Now, it's not that that wasn't a new, a new idea. It wasn't. Inductive reasoning is going from the parts to the whole, looking at data and trying to conclude, what does this data say about the general? So you go from the individual to the, to the or from the particulars to the general. In deductive reasoning, which is the normal way we reason for scripture, we start with a general in scripture, and then we reason to the particular applications of how we walk that out. But inductive reasoning, you look at the particulars and reason to the general. So he proposed that, and that became the basis for a naturalism. That is a focus on nature and what we can learn about nature. Initially, it became natural theology. That was what it was called. And the focus was on what human beings could reason to as they looked at God in Revelation, which that sounded fairly innocent, but you can see the door is open now for the atheists to grab a hold of that, which they did. In time, what you have, you have then not only reasoning being uh, elevated, you then have empiricism elevated. Empiricism is about experience, the focus on experience. We're very experience-oriented today. That has come from this period of time, largely 16th, 17th century, men like John Locke, George Barclay, David Hume. They are the ones that promoted this idea. Uh, and some of these men were professing Christians and even ministers and others were just, just maybe rank, rank peg as humanists. You had a variety of people coming together and in, enjoying empiricism. So you have rationalism coming up, exalting reason. You have experience ex being exalted, and then you have emotion being exalted. This is romanticism that came up in the 18th century as a reaction to rationalism and empiricism. So these became the three means by which human beings who were influenced into thinking that they were almost superior to God, were now explaining reality and talking about knowledge and how we live, should live in this universe. What happened then was we have Immanuel Kant coming along. Kant was a philosopher who began to question reason. He questioned experience. He, he questioned rationalism, emotions. He questioned all these things. He became then the latest embodiment of skepticism. Skepticism has been here all along. It began with Adam and Eve. Doubt, doubting God's revelation, doubting how God's universe was made. Coupled to this was deism, which rose in the, in the middle of the 18th century. Deism was an attempt to begin to bridge the gap between the skepticism that was rising up because of science and rising up in its prominence 
because of reason, rationalism, empiricism, romanticism, all these things rising up in competition to revelation. You see, prior to this, revelation had been the source of all wisdom and knowledge, that, because that was how we found out about God. And now you have these other sources competing, which largely are about human beings using their reason, their experience, and their emotions to define reality. So deism was an attempt to bridge the gap. And it's an example of accommodation. Accommodation has always been a temptation for the Christian community. We have to be very careful about accommodation. Accommodation leads us down the roads of, road of compromise. And that's indeed what happened here. And you're going to see in a moment why that was so toxic. In the middle of the 19th century, you have the theory of evolution coming along. The theory of evolution for the first time made it intellectually acceptable to be an atheist because you could explain how the universe happened without a God hypothesis. You didn't have to talk about a creator and creation. You could talk about natural means. You could posit some eternal universe, which is what they generally assumed, that existed for millions and millions of years and over time through gradual processes things evolve. The things that were fit would evolve. And you have survival of the fittest. And Darwin applied that both to animate and inanimate objects of all sorts. So that's where the, that's what really emboldened the atheism that began to explode in terms of popularity in the 19th century. With that was John Dewey. John Dewey, like so many of these early thinkers, was raised a Christian. But he abandoned his Christianity when he was influenced by the theory of evolution. He was an educator by profession, and he brought evolutionary thinking to education, which meant we need to disconnect education from revelation. We need to assume that knowledge exists independent of God. So the term they used was knowledge is neutral. Knowledge is not biased by, uh, by a God hypothesis. So that presupposition, that assumption is the foundation of virtually all knowledge today in all virtually all institutions. There are very few that I know of that still hold to the truth that all knowledge begins with God. But secular education specifically rejects that idea and promotes secular secularism at all forms. And so if you've gone to public school, you've gone to a, a university, you have been exposed to secular thinking in terms of wisdom and knowledge. Now, the Christian community was not silent here. They were still in this game, and they were trying to accommodate. And just as the uh, 18th century led to deism, now the 19th century led to a liberal church, all in the name of accommodation. And the liberal church began to capture some of Kant's skepticism, which then they used to question everything. They questioned the story of the scripture. They questioned the very words of scripture. They questioned the existence of Jesus, the existence of God, questioned everything. And of course, their, their explanation for what they're doing is they're trying to accommodate and be relevant to philosophy and science of their day, trying to bridge the gap and bring Christianity into unity with those fields. That is so very dangerous, and it proved to be toxic because in the end, virtually every stream of Christianity, every semin major seminary 
became liberal by the end of the 19th century or certainly by the early part of the 20th century. Adding on to this was the death of God movement that was promoted largely by Nietzsche, but supported by Marx and Freud. And so these are the, between Darwin, Marx, Nietzsche, and Freud, you had the four horsemen of the 19th century that promoted basically decoupling God from everything. They promoted atheism and in ways that are unbelievable. Even though Darwin was raised a Christian, even though Nietzsche was raised a Christian, even though Marx and Freud were Jews exposed to the Torah, they rejected that revelation of God in creation, denied it, and promoted humanism. Freud probably did the most damage of all of them because he then returned to the pattern of Adam and Eve in the garden when Adam was called to give an account for his sin. And his comment was very simply that he blamed the woman that God gave to him. Blame. Looking, basically transferring the responsibility for our sin to someone else and thinking then that the solution for the problem that someone else is imposing on us is within us, the exact opposite of Christianity. Christianity teaches the problem is within us and the solution is without, uh, outside of us and must be given to us the grace of God he taught the opposite. The problem is outside and the solutions within. That's the essence of humanism. Very toxic to our world. That This toxicity, this it's all flowing from nominalism and humanism and skepticism. All of this begins to flow into public policy. And the Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. then promoted a new Supreme Court Philosophy, which is now the current philosophy, it's called the will of the dominant majority. Prior to the early part of the 20th century, all judicial rulings were made based on a biblical worldview. And starting in about 1910 or 20, Holmes persuaded the court to change that philosophy. They no longer look to the Bible to inform them on judicial rulings. They look to the will of the people. They were submitting to the humanist times and the humanist culture. In the 1930s, Keynesian economics became popular. And this is about disregarding biblical principles of finance and economics, and now embracing a debt-based system of finance. And now virtually every country in the world uses debt as the basis of their economic system. The world, both individuals and institutions, which includes Sovereign nations, cities, states, and companies of all sorts and churches are built on debt, massive debt. So you can see the unfolding, the unraveling of the culture, the disconnect from Christ and scriptural principles and scriptural norms. And now we've moved into a time when social norms are being redefined. The presumption is that we humans are greater than God we can redefine the institutions. We can redefine how ethics should be. And so we have socially redefined norms. Marriage is being redefined. Divorce is being redefined. Beginning of life, which we know as personhood, it was redefined. And now we have abortion being allowed. Homosexuality, which is forbidden by scripture now, is being normalized. And with it, we have homosexual marriage, and now we even have gender identity being, being posed as normal. 
we are just unraveling and disconnecting from Christian worldviews. So we are separating everything from the Bible, God's basic revelation about creation and his will and his ways for executing his will. We are discounting and disregarding, and we're calling that toxic, all in the name of humanism. Humanism has become the big deal. Where that has led us is very simply here. This is a graph showing the growth rate, the average annual growth rate of the major worldviews. <clears throat> Christianity, Muslim, Hindu, atheism, and Buddhism. I put agnosticism with atheism. They're basically the same. From basically 1800, and it's projected out to 2025. If you look at the average growth rate per year from 1800 to 2025, Basically, the world population is growing at around 3% on average. Christianity is growing a little bit bigger than that. Muslim is triply that. Hindus is a slightly larger. Buddhists are about tracking with the world population growth rate. But the atheists and agnostics are exploding, absolutely exploding. And that is what we are seeing in our culture today is this rise of atheism that is driving everything in our culture. It's causing us to disconnect from everything. So here's a little graph that shows this. So realism connects everything to God, truth, knowledge, mankind, economics, public policy, ethics, everything is informed by God through his word, primarily through scripture. We have to have a high view of scripture for this to work. With nominalism and the advent of nominalism and all that nominalism has empowered, what you have now is a total disconnect of all of these things from Scripture, from God, the revealed word of God, the revealed norms of God, and we have a regressive culture. We call a regressive culture that asserts it's being progressive when in reality it's regressive. So I want to just give you an example of how this is actually playing out. This is a real situation that's going on right now. This is an article I just got this past week, and I want to just comment on what's happening. This is happening at Yale University. Employees and employers may be facing new employment requirements. Those leading the movement to redefine societal norms are promoting discrimination against anyone who does not affirm their ideology. And their ideology is incompatible with historical classical Christianity. Consequently, both employees and employers who subscribe to a Christian worldview will face hard choices in the future. Employees will be required to certify their support of cultural ideology to be accepted into many of the elite educational institutions. And for employers, there will be requirement to affirm support for cultural ideology to be able to go on campus and recruit graduates from the elite institutions. This is a harbinger of what's happening. And so let me just read you an excerpt of the article that I read this week on what's happening at Yale Law School. After the Yale Federalist Society invited an attorney from the Alliance Defending Freedom, ADF, a prominent Christian legal group to speak about the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, 
That's a, a, a court case that happened up in Oregon where a baker declined to bake a cake for it to celebrate a gay wedding and was sued and not only lost the lawsuit uh, that bought from the gay group, but the, the uh, state fined them $250,000, which effectively put them out of business. So that's what the court case, the masterpiece court case was. Conservative students then faced a backlash. Outlaws, that's the law school's LGBTQ group, demanded that the Yale Law School clarify its admissions policy for students who support ADF's positions, that is Christian positions. Additionally, outlaws insisted that students who work for religious or conservative public interest organizations such as ADF during their summers should not receive financial support from the law school. You see the way it works, they have, they have grants and various other financial means for the students during the summer to work for various organizations. So the, the, the outlaws who are the, that's the LBG, LGBTQ group uh, are basically protesting that any Yale students should be working for any organization that supports conservative values. That is any organization embraces a Christian worldview. A month later, Yale's law schools announced via email that it was extending its non-discrimination policy to summer public interest fellowships, postgraduate public interest fellowships, and loan forgiveness for public interest careers. The school will no longer provide financial support for students and graduates who work at organizations that discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity. Yale's policy of non-discrimination supports the politically correct cultural ideology, but discriminates against a Christian worldview. In other words, the politically correct ideology is intolerant of a Christian worldview. The irony is that, the, that in the name of non-discrimination, Yale discriminates. Tolerance for politically correct ideology is intolerance for Christianity. Further irony is the fact that over 300 years ago, Yale was established based on a Christian worldview. Christianity was the ideological foundation for the institution for approximately 200 years. Only in the past 100 years has Yale abandoned its historical Christian roots and embraced metaphysical skepticism. Metaphysical skepticism questions the veracity and authority of Scripture. Christians have historically presumed the veracity and authority of Scripture to provide the foundation for all societal norms. This means that Scripture is the axiomatic foundation of all knowledge and wisdom. Therefore, it is the basis of all education. Biblical knowledge and wisdom has traditionally applied to self-governance, family governance, church governance, workplace governance, and public policy. Historically, theologians were the advocates and protectors of the veracity and authority of Scripture. With the advent of 19th century liberalism, however, the theologians betrayed their duty. To respond to the philosophical and scientific ideology of the 18th century, the early liberal theologians sought to find common ground with secular thinkers. Their attempts to accommodate secularism into Christianity led to compromise. Liberalism embraced skepticism that rejected the revelation of Scripture as the supreme authority for all societal norms. Now, 200 years later, the leaven of liberalism has worked its way through society. Education is now secular. Business and economics have abandoned biblical principles. 
judicial rulings and judicial rulings and public policy are no longer biblically informed and ethical norms are being redefined by an increasingly atheistic culture. Yale's new practices are no surprise. The practice of discriminating against Christians is a logical step in the process of embracing skepticism progressively in our culture. Yale's policy of discrimination will be executed in the following manner. Yale currently says it envisions a self-certification process for employers. For a Yale student to receive a summer public interest fellowship, the employer must certify that it is in compliance with Yale's non-discrimination policy. If an organization does not self-certify, then the student will receive no financial support from the law school. Yale's explanation of this policy was as follows. Yale based its decision on a unanimous recommendation from the school's public interest committee. The committee explained the logic of our broader recommendation is that the Yale Law School does not and should not support discrimination against its own students, financially or otherwise. Obviously, the law school cannot prohibit a student from working for an employer who discriminates. But that, that is not a reason why Yale Law School should bear any obligation to fund that work, particularly if that organization does not give equal employment opportunity to all of our students. The alleged policy of equality is a ruse because it discriminates against those who embrace a Christian worldview. And perhaps soon Yale will require not only all employers hiring Yale students, but also students to self-certify their agreement with politically correct ideology. If the founders of Yale were able to speak to us today, they undoubtedly would want to know why the university has rejected the veracity and authority of scripture. Why has the school abandoned its theological roots? Why has the university capitulated to the skepticism of liberalism? Perhaps the founders would continue by noting that the first skeptics were Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, who presumed the authority to define good and evil, something that was not granted to them by God. The rebellion was an expression of doubt about God and his created order. God reserved the exclusive authority to define good and evil, which includes the definitions of societal norms. How could anyone think that mankind could presume the right to disconnect societal norms from scripture? God made the universe and defines all of its rules. This means that God defines the rules for education, business, economics, law, and ethics. If Yale's founders could speak to it today, they, would even, they might even warn Yale's current leaders with a scriptural citation such as Isaiah 5.20 that reads, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. The politically correct culture today labors under the false label of progressive. Progressives are skeptical regarding the veracity and authority of scripture and therefore falsely presume the authority to redefine societal norms. This presumption is not progressive. It is regressive and will only lead to judgment. Progress, progress only comes by developing knowledge and wisdom congruent with a biblical worldview. Part of the purpose of the Christian community is to be salt and light to the truth. Therefore, the challenge for us, those who profess to be Christians, profess a Christian worldview, is to resist the temptation to compromise with the politically correct ideology of today and be true to scripture no matter what the cost. 
and the cost may be high. It may mean losing money, business, jobs, and freedoms. It could even mean martyrdom. Jesus warned Christians to count the cost to follow him. He said, if anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Yale and other deceived institutions that adopt regressive practices in the name of progress will continue to challenge the Christians. Is the Christian community prepared to truly follow Jesus in a deceived, regressive culture that is increasingly biased against Christianity? Instead of self-certifying to the politically correct ideology today, are Christians willing to self-certify to the veracity and authority of Scripture? This is the real test of who Christians are and what they're willing to sacrifice. May the Lord give us grace to stand up and stand strong on the truth of the veracity of the Word of God in Jesus' name. Amen.